0: Hey there, Bulldogs! I'm Mr. Rabuland, and welcome to Rabuland! Hey there, everyone! Thanks for joining me on another edition of Welcome to Rabuland, where we explore world history while preparing you for the AP World History Modern Exam. Today we'll be going over Topic 8.1 in the AP Curriculum, where we will discuss the historical context of the Cold War in the events that followed World War II in 1945. If you're following along in my PowerPoint, I'm gonna be going over topic 8.1, which should correlate with your Cornell notes. Now, there's a famous picture that you will find online of the Big Three. These are the Big Three leaders that were responsible for leading the Allies through World War II, particularly with the entrance of the United States into the war by 1941, after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. So a lot of these pictures, um, because multiple pictures were taken of the same scene, where you have the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you have Winston Churchill, you have the President of the United States at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, And you have the premier of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin, sitting together um, as they sit at a place called Yalta. Now, Yalta was a resort town in Russia on the Black Sea. And the big three met here in order to discuss the plans that they had for europe after nazi germany and adolf hitler eventually got defeated in april and then eventually what would happen is that the united states would bomb hiroshima and nagasaki in august in 1945 to end the war so the three of them met in may after the fall of nazi germany in order to discuss how to reorganize power in Europe. Remember, Nazi Germany, uh, Mussolini's Italy had completely taken over all of Europe. The governments that existed in the majority of the European continent were suddenly gone. Um, France's government was falling apart or fell apart because um, obviously with the defeat of Nazi Germany, the Nazi puppet government was gone. Um, Italy's government was in a shambles, Germany was completely destroyed. And, you know, on top of that, we have the Holocaust in the background, where millions of people died with six million Jews being the majority of the deaths that happened in the Holocaust. So Europe was completely in a shambles. And so that allowed for the really great powers of the world to come together to discuss how to rebuild Europe after such calamity and dismay. So the Yalta Conference was the place where the big three came together to discuss what to do. And so one of the things that the Yalta Conference tried to do was, or at least in the viewpoint of FDR and Winston Churchill, um, a lot of these leaders, especially uh you know, leaders in the UK and the United States wanted to see the nations of Europe, the little national groups that existed in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, that those were leftovers from World War I, um, the different national groups, the different ethnic groups that were grouped together under the Ottoman Empire, also in World War One, and all of these different places, they wanted to see those national groups regain what's called self-determination. Now, self-determination is a concept that we've talked about before in class where um, national groups, ethnic groups have the power of their own to rule themselves and their ethnic people and also to have a territory of their own that matched. Um, And this is something that is a trend in Europe. We see this wave of nationalism come through again and again and again. Long gone are the days of the big empires, or at least we think they're gone, because obviously Soviet Russia looms in the distance ready to expand on its own. Um, And FDR and Churchill made no Um, made no secret of the fear that they had about the expansion of Soviet Russia. So, in the meantime, the three of them are talking about uh, the idea of giving self-determination to the people of Europe who are now liberated from Nazi and Italian rule, um, rebuilding France, rebuilding Spain, um, not necessarily Spain because the civil war is still happening and Franco is going to be there until 1975 but you know places that were ravaged by nazi germany the balkan peninsula with all of the different slavic states that are there eastern europe the nordic countries to the north even portugal all the way to the west so at the end of the day um europe needs to come back and near europe needs to regain its strength um after literally 45 years of constant fighting and constant militarism. Unfortunately, Europe is still going to see more of this as the Cold War progresses, but um, the three of them don't necessarily know that yet as they're sitting at the Yalta conference. Now, in the PowerPoint, I've included a political cartoon that was uh, drawn by a a guy named Paul Plaschke, and he drew it after right after the yalta conference concluded in 1945 and it was no secret to the western democracies like france the uk and the united states that stalin had intentions to expand and it was very clear from stalin from the get-go that this was something that he wanted for soviet russia and for the communist party so these are kind of the circumstances in which we see the beginning of the Cold War, okay? Now, remember the Cold War, which we're going to be talking about in the next podcast, Uh, the Cold War is basically the term that we give to the time period between 1945, the end of World War II, and 1991, which is the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, And the reason why it's called the Cold War is because there was no open conflict that happened directly between the united states and the soviet union it's important for you to remember that these two powers did not openly declare war on each other okay not like how it was in world war ii and obviously the reason why is because of nuclear weapons Technological gains were made in huge strides during war, and usually we see technology increase and innovate during war. Um, And so the technological gains, particularly the discovery of atomic energy and the development of an atomic bomb, really shifted power away from countries that traditionally relied on a land army and a navy because now these atomic bombs could be dropped by airplanes. They could be dropped anywhere. And then later on in the Cold War, we start to see the space race and the development of rocket science and rocket technology that now also changes the game. So... It's not necessarily going to be a regional power shift, but it's more of an international power shift. So we see the United States and eventually the USSR become the two superpowers because they were the only two countries that had nuclear weapons. Now you may ask, if the United States was the first one to drop the atomic bomb, how did the United, how did the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, get nuclear weapons well the reality is is that nuclear scientists or scientists from the ussr had infiltrated the united states and were able to get the designs for the atomic bomb from uh people within the u.s government whether they stole it or whether they were helped we don't know Um, but at the end of the day they were able to get it and the united uh, the ussr was able to develop their own nuclear weapon now on top of that the development of two economic systems that started in the 1900s or not the 1900s, but before 1900, during uh, the period of 1750 to 1900, we see two economic systems really come to the forefront and represent the ideological conflict of the Cold War. So the United States, champion of democracy and free market capitalism, and the USSR, with government-led communism, okay? These two um, economic systems guided these two nations through the Cold War and saw both of these nations rapidly expanding their territory and their international influence and power. And so these two countries really not, it was not just a military show. Military was really an avenue by which each could demonstrate its own ideological power over one another. And so all of the things that happened within the Cold War are really just overflows of this ideological conflict. So as I alluded to earlier, the end of World War II is really going to signal for a lot of countries around the world, the end of the colonial empires, okay? So just as a review, remember that during the First World War, um, you have the big empires that used to exist in the continent of Europe, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire that existed under the time of Bismarck. You have the Ottoman Empire, an an empire that existed for about 600 to 700 years. And you also have the colonial empires that existed around the world. Um, These empires that had existed really disintegrated. The Russian Empire um, and its stranglehold on Eastern Europe, the same thing with the Ottoman and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, after World War I, all of these empires disintegrated as a result of the ethnic nationalism that existed. Um, And remember that it was actually Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson's goal to see many of these different ethnic groups finally gain their own self-determination as a national group, as an ethnic group. Um, And so a lot of the different Countries within the Balkan Peninsula, like Serbia, Albania, Macedonia, Greece, all of these different countries really came into their own after World War One. However, a lot of colonies that existed under the French, under the British, in particular, and some of the other um, the other European powers that still had hold over um, places in uh, Southeast Asia in, you know, across most of Africa and South Asia as well, they continued to persist, okay? So Britain's hold on South Asia, like India, Pakistan, um, and then also most of East Africa and then French West Africa pretty much stayed under French control. And so even though a lot of the people in these colonies saw other places around the world start getting more and more independence, they were prevented from seeing that. And ultimately, Woodrow Wilson's uh, desire to see many of these different national groups finally gain their own territory and their own land pretty much fell apart, especially since the United States chose not to join the League of Nations after 1919 with the Treaty of Versailles. So at the end of the day, a lot of these people's Desires for independence really went unmet. And remember, the League of Nations was a very powerless organization. And in fact, uh, Germany pulling out of the organization and Japan as well ended up really setting the stage for World War II. Now we get to the end of the Second World War, where we are now in 1945, and colonies around the world basically are done, they're finished with this whole colonial sentiment, um, different countries around the world really start to question, is it worth being connected or being under the rule of a European power when at the end of the day, all they bring us is war? You have to think, both in World War 1 and in World War 2 Canada was still sort of a British colony a British dominion as it were and so the UK used its power to compel Canadian soldiers into both World War 1 and World War 2 and Canada has pretty much always been a country that did not, like the United States, did not want to get involved in a European war. And the same thing goes for Pakistani and Indian sh- and Indian soldiers. A lot of South Asians were brought into the war as well and were dissatisfied with their forced participation. And many of the different African countries that we see now that have colonial roots were also dissatisfied being run by a white European population remember Africa was not a country of borders borders were put on Africa by Europeans Africans did not generally or indigenous Africans did not generally see their land um in this bordered way um, everybody was kind of like a commonplace um, where tribes were free to move between different places and yes there were tribal territories but at the end of the day Um, it didn't need the drawing of borders in order to establish some type of, you know, system that had already existed in Africa for centuries, even millennia, okay? So what happens is that by 1947, we see the dissolution of British India, we see um, India uh, being given control um with the leadership of the indian national congress and the muslim league and eventually um the uk dis, um divides india between um muslim pakistan and india um and hindu india but a story for another day the entire partition was a complete disaster and we're going to be talking about it later in a later podcast uh in the same way Um, What ends up happening is that the different colonies of France in West Africa and Britain in East Africa and the leftovers of the Congo Free State under King Leopold, Remember that King Leopold creates this horrible colony in the in the heart of Africa in uh, what was then known as Zaire, now known as de, uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Belgium loses control and uh, Japan loses all of its colonies. The Americans let go of the Philippines so suddenly all of these different nations around the world are thrust into freedom but are not ready to take on the role of living as a sovereign nation and many of these different countries fall into some type of military conflict or civil war. And because there is so much disarray around the world with decolonization and all of these new countries, the United States and Russia really take advantage of this situation and start seeing all of these different, co- uh, these different colonies as opportunities to spread either democratic capitalism or communism around the world. Um, and so later on, as we head through the different topics of this unit, we're going to see that In the pursuit, in the United States and Russia's pursuit to extend their power around the world, we kind of end up leaving a legacy of military conflict and destruction. Um, Later on in this unit, we're going to be talking about the Korean and the Vietnam War. Uh, We're going to be talking about... um, eisenhower's domino theory and uh the american fear of communism spreading around the world um we're going to be talking about anti-democratic propaganda that was done by soviet russia and all this other stuff so um unfortunately military conflict does not cease after world war ii in fact the united states russia and the rest of the world have not yet figured out how this new global world order is going to be. Um, And unfortunately, this ideological conflict that exists between these two world superpowers are perpetuated by generations afterwards. Um, And it's only until 1991 where we see Soviet Russia falling. Uh, But even so, you can kind of tell in the cinema that we still have today many of our modern movies and even a lot of the political rhetoric that is still um being thrown around even especially around the time when trump was elected in 2016 you still have this u.s russia conflict and this is all resulting from the cold war guys many of your uh, many of our parents um in fact uh, most, if not all, of our parents lived during some portion of the Cold War um, or lived um, in light of its effects. I was born in 1989 in the same year that the Berlin Wall fell. So even then, um, our lives as millennials, as um, the baby boom generation, really live in the effects of the Cold War or at least live through much of it. Um, and so it's interesting to see that as we march through 20th century, as uh, to, through 20th century history, um, the history becomes even more and more relevant um, as we see history unfold before us. Which I think makes for really great conversation and really important discussion as we progress through this unit together. Well, Bulldogs. That's it for today's lecture on topic 8.1, where we discuss the historical context of the Cold War in the events that followed World War II in 1945. Make sure to join me for the next podcast, where we will attempt in some way to explain the causes and effects of the ideological struggle of the Cold War. Until then, happy learning!